you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 14 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. Myself, Mark Tottenham Barrister and editor of Decisis.ie. Mark, a very happy new year to you and a very happy new year to all our listeners. Absolutely. Any great plans for 2023 you'd like to share with our listeners, Mark? More great episodes of The Fifth Court, I think. Oh yeah. What about, what about rumours that your leading work on expert witness evidence might be made into a movie or something like that? Is that going to happen? <laughs> I, 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 we'll just watch this space, thank you. <laughs> well, let's see what happens. We ended the year uh, 2022 with a great interview with barristers uh, Cleana Kimber and Claire Bruton, who were talking about the second edition of their book, uh, Employment Equality Law. Really good yeah, interview, Mark. Absolutely. Very interesting issues. And I, I I'm sure everybody will want to rush out and buy that. Oh, the employment practitioners have it already. I'd say it was in the Christmas stocking, um, but really, really good. Well, on today's show, we're going to get a fascinating insight into the day-to-day workings of our superior court judges. Gemma McLaughlin-Burke is a barrister and colleague who has just finished a stint as a judicial assistant. I think that was a little while ago, but uh, she was working directly with judges in the Court of Appeal, and one judge in particular, uh, Mr. Justice Robert Houghton. Uh, The introduction of judicial assistance is a relatively recent development and we're going to discuss with her how it works in practice, the roles they play and while they are very different to the good old fashioned tip staff that most of us are familiar with um, what are the differences and we're really looking forward to that interview but first we're going to discuss three cases which you have identified from the Decisis website the first is a medical negligence case concerning the use of epilepsy medication and its risk to pregnancy a very very serious issue Uh, this is the case of AF and Minor versus Feeney. It's a decision of Mr. Justice Simons in the High Court. However, it came before the court on this occasion because the pleadings needed to be amended. So it's kind of a technical ground. Uh, But crucially here, the application to amend the proceedings was made only seven days before the case was was due to go to hearing. uh, And it had been set down for hearing at the last day of November in 2022. So uh, very short notice in terms of the application mark. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the point here is that yeah, as you said, the, the case involved um, the, the use of epilepsy medication and its effect on on people who are pregnant. The, um, the but the the issue here is that under the rules of court, the the courts are supposed to determine the real issues between the parties, and so it's not unheard of at all for somebody to make an make an application before or even during a trial to amend their pleadings. And the point that was particularly made by Ms. Justice Simons was that um, the personal injury rules now specify that you are supposed to plead with particularity. And so if an issue arises, even very late in the day from a new expert report or something along those lines, the, the plaintiff must be able to make that amendment in order for the for the real issues to be determined by the court. I think this is a decision that will register with a lot of our colleagues because often things arise as you're getting close mm-hmm. to the trial date and you'd like to introduce them if you can. And he's kind of more or less said that the justice of the case will dictate whether he should allow them in. 
Isn't yeah. that it? Or am yeah, I right I mean, that? Yeah, it, I, it, he is. I mean, I think there's another way of looking at it, which is that uh, very often by the time a case gets to trial, the pleadings, that's the, the statement of claim and the defence have been in, uh, have, have been drafted several months, if not yes. years beforehand. And very often the, the agenda for the trial has, be, has modified since the original pleadings. And so there's a lot to be said for allowing late uh, amendments based on, for example, expert reports. He made a very interesting quote, I think, uh, and I'm just going to read it out. I think this is this is this is this summarizes it in a nutshell. He says it is unsatisfactory that an application to amend be made at the 11th hour. However, as emphasised in the case law discussed above, the principal function of courts is to decide the rights and duties of parties and not to punish them for mistakes they make in the conduct of their cases. Rather, the court must lean in favour of allowing an amendment unless to do so would cause irredeemable prejudice to the other side. Hmm. I think that's a quotation that I'll certainly keep in my locker. I'd say a lot of practitioners will. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. All right. Moving along uh, to our next case. Uh, And this is a fascinating case, Mark, that will be of interest to anybody out there living in an apartment and who wonders about the responsibilities of their beloved management company. Uh, And I suppose it also has a strong seasonal element. Uh, This is the case of Ahmed versus Castlegrange Management Company Limited by Guarantee. Uh, And this is a court of appeal decision by Mr. Justice Noonan. In his finding, Mr. Justice Noonan held that the management company of an apartment complex in question were not liable for injuries sustained by the tenant who slipped on ice in the pedestrian common areas of the building. That's right. So there's a very often a perception that anybody who suffers an injury in, a, in on somebody else's property is effectively entitled to a to to, to succeed against them in a personal injuries case. Um, and Mr. Justice Noon in this case made it very clear that the, the, that there are certain limitations to the responsibility of a management company. So the tenant in this case, obviously, it was a cold day, went out into the pedestrian area, slipped and injured himself on ice. Um, and he brought the action against the management company. But the, the point that Mr. Justice Noonan made was the management company, although it is a separate legal entity, the apartment owners are all members of the management company, including in this case the plaintiff himself. If they had wanted the management company to, for example, salt or grit the common areas whenever there was a drop in the temperature, well, they'd be making, giving them an instruction to do that but they would also be paying for it through their service charges. So if that instruction hadn't been made, you can't really expect the management company to unilaterally, every time there's uh, there's frosty weather, to go in and grit the, the, the area. So he said from that point of view, there was no responsibility of the management company. But he went on to say that it is, a, it is the responsibility of an individual person yes. when they're leaving their apartment to be aware of issues of such as the drop in temperature. Can I read out a quote? I'm, I'm can, fond of, of the course, quotes yeah. today. Um, the plaintiff <clears throat> had resigned, resided in his apartment since 2002 and was intimately familiar with the locus of the accident. So he knew where he was. He knew that the weather had been extremely cold on the previous day and was able to see as he emerged from his apartment that the ground was wet. While he may not have been able to observe the black ice, which he says, was present on account of its translucent quality. Uh, Nonetheless, he ought surely to have reasonably anticipated the potential or likely presence of ice 
on the landing. So he was saying this lad was not an innocent abroad. Exactly. He kind of he knew enough now to to take a look out and watch out for the hazards that were around him. Uh, really interesting case, Mark, and brilliantly explained by you. Okay, finally, uh, we're we're going to start the year with uh, a discovery case as well, uh, and this involves uh, what a drone may or may not have seen when it was flying in the air in County Kildare. This is the case of Keegan Quarries Limited versus Cummins. Uh, It's a decision of Justice Roberts. Uh, The plaintiff was looking for video footage through discovery, uh, video footage and photos which he alleged, alleged had been taken by a drone operated by the defendant over its quarry in County Kildare. That's right. So the, the, the case here was a trespass case. So it's obviously a, a <clears throat> concerns uh, either a, a previous trespass or a fear of trespass involving the, the defendant. And there was a certainly a perception or, or, or evidence had been put before the court that the plaintiff had been involved in using a drone in the vicinity of the quarry. So the plaintiff then said, well, obviously, if a drone has been used by the defendant, then there must be some sort of records, presumably footage or photographs, as you say, from the drone. And so they looked for discovery of those records. And the the modification that Ms. Justice Roberts made in this case was um, that the the plaintiff had looked for, um, for, for a discovery of of drone footage that had been made in the vicinity of the quarry and she specified that it should only be used uh, it should only be footage that's made on the defendant's okay. quarry effectively. So the, the drone had to go over the wall so to speak? Uh, over the wall. I think it's, it it uh, arises from the, the well-known uh, principle that, yes. that that you own the land down to the centre of the earth and up to the skies. I can't remember the All last the way, way of phrasing the moon it. And exactly. beyond. Exactly. Okay, very interesting case. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that Mark and we're going to be back uh, shortly with Barrister Gemma McLaughlin-Burke talking about her role as a judicial assistant. At Practice Evolve, we ensure law firms have a clear pathway to the cloud while encouraging connectivity to improve overall productivity. Our focus on user competency also means law firms can discover new, innovative ways of working. We call it software with a service. Discover more today at www.practiceevolve.com. Silence in the fifth court. We are delighted to be joined in the studio by Barrister Gemma McLaughlin-Burke, who is going to talk to us about the role of the judicial assistant, which is a relatively recent development in the courts. Um, until about the time of the financial crisis, what was usual to find was what was known as tip staff. Isn't that correct, Gemma? Yeah, that's, uh, that's right. And the JA is effectively replacing a tip staff. Yeah, in some cases they're additional, but I think the idea is that they're trying to move more towards the judicial assistant model instead of the tip staff model that was previously in place. And certainly back in the back of the time myself and Peter started in practice, um, almost every judge would be accompanied wherever they went by normally a man, normally relatively well on in years. I think m- many of the ones I got to know would have been former members of the Garda Chicano or sometimes yeah, the Defence yeah, Forces. Yeah. And um, I don't know if the, the staff was always just for ornamental purposes or if it was for, for keeping, in order, keeping order in the court. Um, but they would be the ones who would say, silence, please, all rise, those sort of things. Yeah. Whereas now one tends to find much younger uh, um, uh, people uh, accompanying the judge into court and saying, all rise, and um, and adopting a very different role. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think the idea of the judicial assistant role is 
to be a little bit more wide ranging than the tip staff role. And so it's usually kind of people who are younger, mostly kind of college graduates or um, kind of a more younger demographic who will come in and assist more so with the actual legal aspect of, of the role. So um, it's funny because a lot of people, when they used to ask me about being a judicial assistant, they would say things like, oh, you're the one who says all rise in court. Whereas that is such a small part of the role. But very know. important. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Essential. <laughs> and and for yourself, for your own path, I mean, how, how did you first hear of the availability of that as an, as an option when you were when you were graduating? Yeah, it's strange because I, so I actually had worked for a few years before I took up the role of judicial assistant and it was during the course of working at a law firm a solicitor actually said to me that someone they knew had taken up the role of judicial assistant I'd never heard of it before and just because they had known that I had intended to go to the bar they said to me they thought it would be a good a good match for you know that kind of career path so um, I applied and it was a horrendously slow process and in the process um, of of finishing the application and having finished the interview, I actually, I was placed on the panel. I was so low on the panel that I had taken up another job and started, uh, at, at, like, I think I was there maybe five months before I got the call to say, would you like to come and work in the high court? So then I, I eventually decided I would, I would take up that role. Sure. And so you, you said you were obviously working for a couple of years between college and taking up the position. Yeah. And would that be common or would most JAs come straight out of, uh, of college? Uh, it's slightly different because when I started as a, as a judicial assistant, the um, I would have been the least qualified and I obviously... I, I mean, I had my law degree and I had worked in law firms and I had good legal experience, but... Um, I would have maybe been less qualified than a lot, a lot of the people there. There were a lot of qualified said- solicitors there, lots of qualified barristers. Everyone had a master's. I was the only one who didn't have a master's. Um, so it, a lot of them, I mean, for some of them, it was their first job, but for a lot of them, they had experience working elsewhere. And Quite extensive experience from what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, good experience. Absolutely. I mean, there's some really top quality people there when I was working, when I when I first started. And, and what are the fundamental qualifications to be JA? So I think it's probably slightly changed because it, it changed as I was leaving. I think they were kind of, um, I don't know, maybe they decided to kind of rebrand the role a little bit and it's more directed now at people who are kind of just out of college. So your law degree is really the essential thing. And obviously it's beneficial if you have work experience or you if you have a master's qualification or something else, um, any other further qualifications. But for the most part, I think it's, they, they kind of assess your abilities. I, I think they do an exam now. You have to just sit an exam. When I was applying, you had to write an essay. And I wrote, ours is actually on the decision in DP and JC, which is a 600 page or extensively long uh, decision um, of the Supreme Court. So I think that was almost, if you could just get through reading the judgments um, and writing something about it, I feel like that was enough for you to get through to the interview stage. Sure. And I, I suppose everybody who takes an interest in American law knows that the um, that it's quite common for American uh, judges to have clerks. And of course, famously, a number of Supreme Court cases, pre- sorry, Supreme Court judges previously clerked for Supreme Court judges. Do, do, are you aware whether there's a sort of similarity in the role between a JA and an American style clerk? Yeah, I mean, I think I think from some of the comments that have been made by some members of the Supreme Court that the idea is that that is what the role is supposed to be. 
Um, I, I mean, it's quite extensive and it does depend on what court you're in and what judge you're with. But I do think that maybe the ideal is that your judicial assistant is someone that you can kind of bounce ideas off and discuss cases with and they will help you, like they assist you in drafting decisions and summarising submissions and that kind of thing. So I think the roles are quite similar. I don't think it's as... Um, Involved, let's say, as the as the American style role, but it's definitely you know along the same lines. I think. And the kind of things you've just been outlining there in terms of helping with submissions and doing legal research. I mean, that's, that would be very familiar to anybody who's deviled for a barrister. I mean, it's quite you're almost like being a devil to a judge. Absolutely, yeah. And I I always have said that I think it's the job that's most similar to being a barrister, except of course you have yeah. a steady a steady income, you know, an actual wage coming. And you're the other side of the bench. Exactly, and there's a lot less responsibility because obviously you're not the decision maker so um, you're really just kind of assisting them in their role but um, yeah I mean I do think it's an awful lot like being at the bar you know you're coming in early in the morning you're getting through your papers you're preparing for whatever's at hearing that day then you obviously you're hearing at hearing in court and then you finish for the day and you're back to the office and kind of whatever going through whatever needs to be done so yeah I do think they're very similar. And each judicial assistant is assigned to a particular judge. Is yeah, that right? yeah. And um, and you uh, you JA'd for for a court of appeal judge. Uh, so I yes, I was judicial assistant to Mr. Justice Houghton when he was in the High Court when he was the head of the Commercial Court. He's now gone up to the Court of Appeal. So when uh, when I was in the High Court with him uh, in the Commercial Court, it was very very paper heavy. It's a really intense role. You're talking about you know going through maybe 20, 30 sets of papers on a Thursday and Friday in preparation for the Monday list. Then you have whatever cases are at hearing, which are obviously very paper heavy as well because it's a commercial court. So um, I think that the role is probably quite essential to someone who is, you know, um, assisting a judge in that capacity because there's just so much paperwork and, you know, and one thing I think that people don't appreciate is how overworked judges, especially in the High Court and in the Court of Appeal, um, how, how much of a workload they have and mm. how little resources they have. So I think it's really important that they have someone who can assist him with those kind of, you know, essential mm. functions. And, and if you are working with a judge in the High Court and mm. they're elevated to the Court of Appeal, does their judicial assistant move with them oh, generally? Yeah, or absolutely. Is that, yeah, mm. yeah. So kind of once you're, once you're stuck to a judge, you're together through, throughout until you finish up and so it's a three year contract for a judicial assistant um, so you know unless for some reason you decide maybe you want to move to a different area and you ask your judge maybe about moving to be with a different judge you know usually people just stay with whatever judge they're with So it's not unusual though for somebody to move to, an, to another judge? Or uh, yeah I mean it does happen sometimes um, it, I think it would have been an option for me if I wanted to because obviously I practice in crime and that would be my main interest uh, I think it potentially would have been an option open to me if that's what I wanted to do. Um, but I wanted to obviously stay where I was. I was very happy where I was. So, uh, so yeah. And for those of us who are working the other side of the, the bench, so to speak, I mean, th you're you're working primarily in the judge's library, is that right? Or, or where would be, what, where's your main place of work when you're so, judging? We, well, I was based in Orsidolic at the time. There were judicial assistant offices there and there's, you know, shared offices. There was maybe, I think, 15 of us there. And I, yeah, and so we kind of all worked down there. Between there and the judges' chambers would be 
where you are most for the most part. Sure. Gemma, that's re- this is this is really interesting, and uh, it, like it's great for us to kind of get an insight into behind the scenes with judges. And I know you probably can't give away too many family mm. secrets, uh, and I know you'd be very loyal to to Judge Horton, and we would expect nothing less. But one point that you made there that was really interesting, you said people don't realise how overworked our judges are in mm. the high court. Yeah. Will you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, the judges, if you look at, so I can only talk about the commercial court because that's where I was. But if you look at maybe we had four or five judges assigned to the commercial court and those judges are hearing every single day. Um, for the most part, they're hearing very long cases uh, with an awful lot of paperwork, you know, eight or ten boxes of paperwork for a case would not be unusual in the commercial court. And they're expected to read all of those papers, you know, be be prepared to deal with the case. Then you're at hearing for the day and then to come out with the judgment in like fairly quickly after the case has ceased. But then you're straight into another case, you know, the moment you finish. So you could yeah. finish a case on a Wednesday. You're starting another one on a Thursday. Then there's the motions list on a Monday. So it's just, I mean, there's just too many cases and they're absolutely aren't enough judges. And I mean, obviously all judges are different and they all have different approaches Mm -hmm. in how they go about their work. But how do you go about that? As you say, you've been bombarded by all this information. The people who are speaking to you, the the barristers representing the clients in court have been preparing these cases for ages. Mm -hmm. So they know everything. The judge is fresh. Yeah. You know, hearing this for the first time and then has to try and collate all this information at the end of the day uh, and then go in and be fresh again the next morning. Yeah. Uh, And as you say, then maybe move between cases cases, start a completely different case. So how how is that managed? Or can you can you tell us a little bit about that? Or do they take notes in the evening or do they yeah. dictate some thoughts at the end of the day? I mean, I, I think Judge Houghton's practice would always be to, he would kind of take very thorough notes throughout the course of a hearing and then the same at the end of the day he would I think put his thoughts on paper but he's just he's a really phenomenal judge and I know I'm very biased but he's he's absolutely amazing I mean I remember once we had a case You're pushing an open door with myself <laughs> and Mark on that one but Oh anyway. yeah I mean he's he's really exceptional but we had a case uh, once I think it ran for maybe eight days and the moment the case finished I think it finished at maybe four o'clock on a Thursday and he went straight into chambers sat down wrote out his judgment and delivered the judgment, an extemp judgment the next day, I think maybe 12 o'clock. And the extemp judgment is about two and a half hours long. But it was, and it was an incredibly complex Will case. Would you just say for those who are not familiar, an <laughs> oh, extemp temp judgment. So as as opposed to a written judgment, it's um, it's kind of, it's not... An extemporary, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So, um, so yeah, and he delivered it in, in whatever, that two and a half hours. And he had just distilled all of that information um, yeah, just so quickly. He's just, he's really exceptional. I mean, I just, I don't know many judges that could do that. You're obviously, you're completely undermining all of our ideas that the judges just ask their judicial assistants to write their, their judgments <laughs> for them. Um, but I, I take it there is that, that quite often when a judgment's being written, the JA would have quite a, quite an input into the to the research and possibly uh, yeah. writing. So I think the, the main function of judicial assistants when they are assisting with judgment writing is, you know, to to do a summary of the facts, to do a summary of the submissions, anything that was relevant that occurred in court, to maybe do some research into the law um, and to kind of put together. And when I say research, we'd obviously combine ourselves to whatever is in the booklet of authorities. That's really important. Sure. Um, 
So, yeah, then just kind of like summing up whatever the law is in the booklet of authorities. So, you know, it is, it, it can be very hands-on. It depends what kind of judge you have. All judges are different. Some judges don't like delegating and that's perfectly yeah. fair. Um, other judges, I think, maybe would feel that they wouldn't be able to manage their workload if they didn't have someone to delegate some of that work to, um, which I also think is, you know, is fair. Um, but yeah, it just completely depends on the judge. Sure. And in terms of wide duties, I mean, <clears throat> we don't want to go too far down this line, but uh, famously, uh, occasionally judicial assistants have been asked to to perhaps buy the lunch for the for the judge that they're working for i mean it, it uh, these days the, uh, the, yeah, the, the, the is, these days the, the, this is a great insight mark exactly i certainly didn't know that well so this is something that was um bandied about i think in some of the papers and on foot of some remarks that maybe certain judges had made i can say that i never ever once ever made judge Houghton lunch and in fact on a few occasions he actually provided me with lunch when we were out in circuit um, um, but, but I think it's also right to say that judges these days are not provided with uh, catered uh, lunches. I mean, they have to provide their own food. So yeah, it, it yeah. wouldn't be unreasonable on a busy day to ask their JA to pop out and not. get them a sandwich. No, absolutely not. And I'd have no difficulty doing mm. that, you know, if that was... Oh, Mark, there won't be a dry eye in the house. <laughs> <laughs> Sad stories, my God. But I think, I mean, I... So we were horrendously short-staffed when I was a judicial assistant. So I ended up covering... As well as working with my own judge full-time, I would have covered with an awful lot of other judges, maybe about, I'd say, half of the judges of the High Court at the time, I would say. And I think that there's, again, like a perception that judges are, you know, the old school kind of view of judges being a very certain way and kind of using Driven their... in black cars in and out of court. There's, they, these actually, days you see them on the dart of the buses just as often. Yeah, they're actually very down to earth in my experience and very conscientious, very respectful of their judicial mm. assistants. Um, so, I mean, that's just not something I ever encountered and it, I think it caused a lot of... Uh, raised eyebrows we'll say in our offices and we saw that because it just it doesn't really correlate with most of our experiences. Gemma can I come in there and in terms of being a judicial assistant just when you were talking about devilling and stuff like that I got into my head that you only work for a year with a judge but you can keep working forever with a judge can't you? Uh, no so it's limited to three years. All oh, right, okay. Yeah yeah um, which I think is, is a good amount of time I mean when I was finishing up I stayed the full three years and when I was finishing up I did feel I'd kind of run it's, it had run its course a little bit I'd gotten as much as I could out of it so I think it's a good kind of window of time um, and it was kind of you know, pre the bar as well. So, um, yeah. And is that what all your colleagues do? Do they follow on into become barristers? Is that what they do? No, I mean, people, lots of them have gone on to um, work in law firms. A lot of them are solicitors now. Some of them have gone on to work in human rights. Other people have gone on to do things completely like not related to law. It's just a really excellent, I think, um, kind of pathway for anyone. It gives you such great experience and you get so many skills from working in the job. I think it does open a lot of doors. So you could kind of go on and do anything. Do judges working in the criminal courts, do they have judicial assistance? Uh, They do. I would know less about that because I was never down kind of in the CCJ as a judicial assistant, but they do have judicial assistance. Yes, helping them out with it. Okay. Can we go back to the old tip staff? Because... um, uh, Mark gave a very interesting pen portrait of your your typical tip staff, and you know they used to say "all rise" as you say mm. yourself in in court, uh, and you know they looked after the judge and all that sort of stuff. But they played such a valuable role, and the the most valuable role they played was that they were a conduit between practitioners in the court and the judge because mm-hmm. we don't get to talk outside of, you know, we have to directly address the court and that's the way it should be, etc. Um, but often little messages need to come back and forth and stuff like that. Uh, and tip staff played a, an invaluable role in that. Mm. Is that something you guys do? Yeah, I mean, whenever we were dealing, when we were on circuit, so we would go on circuit a few times a year or, well, 
maybe once a year if we were lucky. And there they were usually personal injuries cases and you'd be kind of, you know, there's awful, often an awful lot of talking going on at the parties. So I would spend a lot of those days sitting in court, you know, trying to communicate between everyone what's happening. Um, so yeah, absolutely. It's a function that we also... Um, and is there much collegiality among judicial assistants? I mean, you said that there's, in Orsidolic there were maybe 15 of you working there. Um, uh, in my office, yeah, there were others working upstairs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we would all, I think, yeah, I think we, we kind of all would train each other. We'd all learn from each other. You'd go to someone if you had a query or, you know, didn't know how to handle something. Or, you know, when you've had a bad day and you've made an absolute fool of yourself, like I did on multiple occasions from falling down the steps in court in front of everyone. Um, to the first time that I actually called All Rise and I was so nervous, I did it in a kind of high-pitched English accent, which I've <laughs> never done before, never done since. Um, but so, yeah, they're always there as well to kind of go in and have a good moment and complain. And I think but there's probably about what, 70 High Court judges now, so that, that presumably a similar number of judicial yeah, assistants. Yeah. And, and would you get to know the ones in the Court of Appeal, the Supreme Court? And So, I yeah, I shared an office with some of the ones who were working in the Court of Appeal and I would have known some of the judicial assistants working in the Supreme Court I as have well image of Father Ted, you know, with the kind of the parish priest and his dougal beside him. No, that's a terrible baby image to create. But like, is it kind of my judge is better than your judge? Is there any of that going on? Um, not really. I mean, I think, you know, like I said, the standard, I think, of judges is very high at the moment, especially in the high court. So I think everyone was kind of just, you know, we tell nice stories to each other and we'd all just talk about you know, that we were happy to be with whoever we were with. I think, I think you need to re- write a book. I think, can you do an anonymous book or something? You know, the secret JA or something. So, so you would really get the whole story. Anymore. I tell you, that'd be more interesting than anything we can we can produce on this show, I tell you. Uh, and are there any downsides to being a JA? Oh, absolutely. I mean, so from my perspective, I took a very significant pay cut to go from working where I was to, you know, go working as a JA. Um, also, you know, the, depending on who you're with, your workload can be very heavy. If you end up with a judge who is not very nice, and there are obviously, uh, you know, as there are in all jobs, there are some people who aren't. Um, Personality clashes, I think. Yes, uh, and it, that can be very, very difficult. Um, and also some judges who maybe just don't want to delegate the kind of work that you want to do. That can also be, you know, sure. difficult as well. So, yeah, there are definitely downsides as there are with any job. But it's definitely, I mean, apart from the bar, it's my favourite job I've ever had. So, um well, that's a ringing endorsement. Yeah, so. yeah, it was really a great experience. And I think... Before- well, are we getting to the stage? I mean, this has been really interesting. It's a fa- fabulous insight, Gemma. Uh, I've actually found it... I, I, I knew, obviously, I knew of JAs, but I didn't yeah. really know a lot about you. And yeah, I feel yeah. I know so much more as a result of that. Yeah. Can we ask you our question that we always ask at the end What's, of the show? This is about the books and about the movies. Um, just any legal book, Mark, do you want to, do you want to take her through that? Sure. Uh, any book you'd like to recommend to one of your colleagues at the bar, to your colleagues generally at the bar or to any JAs or law students coming up uh, behind or, or, or film or other work of art? Um, I'm currently reading, this is an old one though, Jeremy Hutchinson's Case Stories, is that what it's called? It's... Really New good. to me. No, tell us about it. Uh, Absolutely. Is, is it memoirs or? Yeah, or? of a, a QC who just was at the criminal bar in England and, he, well, not just the criminal bar, he also did a lot of defamation cases and, yeah, he just, it's a really, really interesting read um, and he takes a very different style of being a barrister, you know, he's very involved in his clients' lives even after cases have ceased and, yeah, it's just, I, I think it's very interesting. Anyway. Great. Well, thank you very much for joining us in the Thank you. Court. 
At Practice Evolve, we ensure law firms have a clear pathway to the cloud while encouraging connectivity to improve overall productivity. Our focus on user competency also means law firms can discover new, innovative ways of working. We call it software with a service. Discover more today at www.practiceevolve.com. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week. So that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guest, Barrister Gemma McLaughlin-Burke, for coming in and telling us all about the important role of a judicial assistant. Mark, you loved this one, didn't you? I think I think it's really interesting. That, I mean, I think it's an opportunity that certainly I wish I'd had back in the day. And oh, yeah. I mean, very few barristers get to see a judge's library or to visit judges and chambers. And if you start your career at the bar with that kind of experience, it must give you such a, a, an insight. And she also gave us some insights into the world of judges as well. Indeed, yeah, you know, yeah, And in yeah. fairness, she pointed out that they are massively overworked. I think yeah, at the High Court yeah. they are producing those decisions one after the other. It's very challenging. No, brilliant interview. Uh, I would also like to say a big thank you to our producer, Conal O'Moroin, and to the Dublin South Podcasts for recording this show and doing such a wonderful job. If you have any comments or any legal stories you'd like to raise with us, please contact us on our website or on our LinkedIn page. Uh, and Mark, can we start the year by telling people to share again? Are people, are people getting so, fed up listening to I this think, about I sharing? Think that, I think Have sure they all want to make their New Year's resolution to make sure that all of their friends and colleagues I, get to hear. I'm half afraid them. not to do it because I know Connell will give out to me. He's a great man for encouraging people to share. So I think Indeed. we still have to say it. Um, so for myself, Peter Leonard. And myself, Mark Tottenham. Thank you for listening. And can we wish everybody a happy new year? Best wishes for 2023 to you all, uh, and we'll see you soon in the Fifth Court. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.